Going to look at uh, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 14, for those of you who like to look at that in your Bible. Just some selected passages. We're going to look, first of all, chapter 14, beginning at verse 12. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, Where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? So he sent two of his disciples, telling them, Go into the city, and the man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Say to the owner of the house he enters, The teacher asks, Where is my guest room, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. The disciple left, went into the city, and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus arrived with the twelve. While they were reclining at the table eating, he said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They were saddened, and one by one they said to him, Surely you don't mean me. It is one of the twelve, he replied. Then down to verse 26. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. You will all fall away, Jesus told them, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter declared, even if all fall away, I will not. Truly I tell you, Jesus answered, today, yes, tonight, before the rooster crows twice, you yourself will disown me three times. But Peter insisted emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the others uh, said the same. They went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. He said to them, stay here and keep watch. Going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that, if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And then we're going to skip down to verse 43. Just as he was speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, appeared. With him was a crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with him. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him and lead him away under guard. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Rabbi, and kissed him. The men seized Jesus and arrested him. Then one of those standing near drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Am I leading a rebellion, said Jesus, that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I was with you, teaching in the temple courts. You did not arrest me, but the scriptures must be fulfilled. Then everyone deserted him and fled. A young man wearing nothing but a linen garment, was following Jesus. 
When they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. We'll end on that little weird tidbit. This is God's word to us. For him we give thanks. So this is Good Friday. This is the day we mark the end of our Lord's unrelenting, unstoppable march to the cross. Tonight, what I'd like to do with you is take a closer look at three of the characters who were there in the midst of the story. All three of them have one thing in common. Each in his own way abandoned Jesus. Each in his own way deserted Jesus at the very moment when the Master needed them most. The three we're going to consider together tonight Two of the three, by the way, you know quite well, you're very familiar with, but I'm going to introduce you to a third. The three we're going to look at tonight are the disciple who was silent, the disciple who disowned Jesus, and the disciple who betrayed Jesus. And the question I'd suggest that that is here for each of us tonight is this one, with whom do I most identify? If I had been there, if you had been there on the night before the cross, how might I have responded? How might you have responded to the events that took place that night? Because I submit there's a sense in which you were there. First, consider with me the disciple who was silent. Now, we're not given his name, but he seems to have been almost everywhere that night and earlier in the day, and yet always in the background. It was his home, actually his mother's home, that the disciples used to celebrate the Passover that night. He was their host, probably made the preparations. He put a servant in place with a jar of water, a signal prearranged with Jesus so that the servant could then lead Jesus' disciples to the home. Perhaps he was even there in the upper room, in the background, maybe even waiting on tables, observing Jesus as the master washed the feet of the disciples that night, as Jesus celebrated Passover with them, as Jesus served the very first communion. Perhaps he listened as Jesus said, Take it. This is my body. This is my blood poured out for many. Perhaps he saw Judas leave angry and confused, ready to do his dastardly deed of betrayal. Now, I want you to see this silent disciple as he follows Jesus out of the city, as he follows Jesus down into the Kidron Valley and up into the Mount of Olives to the Garden of the Gethsemane. See him as he watches Jesus go off on his own, alone to pray. Curious, perhaps. He follows Jesus to those solemn moments when Jesus, on his knees in prayer, pouring his heart out to the Father. Could this young man be the reason we know what Jesus prayed that night? Someone must have heard it to preserve the words. Was it him? Did he hear Jesus say, Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he was there, still in the background, when the soldiers came for Jesus. We are, we are given one clue. 
and only one clue as to his identity. It comes after all the others have deserted Jesus. They've all fled. That's what the story says. And then listen to Mark chapter 14, verses 51 and 52. A young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus. When they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. Now, many scholars, I must tell you, picking up on this little clue, believe this young man, this silent disciple, following Jesus at a distance, was none other than Mark, the author of the second gospel. Let me make the case. Mark would have been about the right age. Mark came from a wealthy Jerusalem family, one of the elite aristocratic families of the city. From Acts chapter 12, we learn that Mark's mother's home was a place where the early church of the resurrection gathered for prayer. Listen again to these words, words that seem like nothing more than a footnote in the story, words that seem out of place in this story. Why are these words here? A young man wearing nothing but a linen garment, was following Jesus. When they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. I'm thinking this young man was Mark. Since all the others had fled, who but Mark would have been there to witness this scene? Who but Mark would have cared enough to get this rather insignificant piece of history into the record book? Who but Mark? But no matter... He was a disciple at a distance. Something kept him from full surrender. Something kept him from identifying himself totally with Jesus. Something held him back. Perhaps the late biblical scholar and preacher Ray Steadman was right. Steadman not only believed that the young man in this story, the man who fled, was Mark, but that Mark was also, you ready for this? That Mark was also the rich young ruler. The fellow asking what it would take to inherit eternal life and then walking away sad when he heard this from Jesus, everything, it will cost you everything, sell it all, give to the poor, then come follow me. Was Mark the rich young ruler? There is support for this conclusion. You see, the gospel writer Mark is the only one. Uh, Matthew tells the story of the rich young ruler. Mark tells the story. Luke tells the story. But Mark is the only one, the only one who in telling the story of the rich young ruler uses this intriguing phrase, Jesus looked at him and loved him. Mark alone gives us those words. Only one who was there. One whose eyes locked on the gaze of Jesus and beheld the look of love that was there could have written about it. Jesus looked at him and loved him. So Mark, Mark very well may have been the rich young ruler as well as the young man who ran away naked. If this was so, then it was his wealth and position that kept him from making a total commitment to Jesus. Jesus wanted more than he was willing to give. And so he was the silent disciple, the disciple who kept his distance, the disciple who kept dipping his toe into the waters, but always unable to take the final plunge into fuller and closer followership. And, and perhaps there's someone tonight who can identify with him. Maybe, 
Maybe you've been observing Jesus for a long while, but you've kept your distance for fear of the cost of following him more closely. You've you've dipped your toe in time and time and time again, perhaps, but the plunge into full followership has not yet been made. You were there. You're still there, the disciple who was silent. And then there was the disciple who disowned Jesus. We know his name, of course, Simon Peter. Nothing, by the way, nothing silent about this disciple, nothing ever silent about Peter. He was the first to see God in Jesus. When Jesus asked his followers, who do you say I am? It was Peter who answered immediately, you are the Messiah, you are the Christ, you are the Son of the living God. When Jesus set his face to Jerusalem, telling his disciples he would die there at the hands of his enemies, it was Peter who took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. Get the picture? Peter rebuking, scolding Jesus. (laughs) Never, Lord, said Peter, this shall never happen to you. I won't let it happen, Jesus, over my dead body, Lord. No dead Messiah on my watch. And, And Jesus then rebuked. Peter, remember? Get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely the concerns of humans. Peter, Peter, you have no idea how God works. If God intends for Messiah to die, then Peter, Messiah dies. No silent disciple, this Peter, bold and boisterous, impetuous, impulsive, speak first and think later, that's Peter. Back to the story. The Passover feast is finished. Communion has been served. The final hymn has been sung. Jesus and the eleven, just eleven now, for Judas has gone out to earn his thirty pieces of silver. So Jesus and the eleven, Jesus and the eleven have made the thirty-minute walk to the Mount of Olives. About thirty minutes. I've made the walk more than once. About thirty minutes it takes. Now, see Jesus on the slope of Olivet as he turns around to face Jerusalem. Looking across to the city walls, he sees them coming for him, the Roman soldiers and the temple guards. He sees the lights of their torches, torches and lanterns as they emerge through the city gates and move down the slope that will take them into the Valley Kidron and then through the valley and up to this place, up to Gethsemane. Gethsemane, once a safe place, a place where Judas and Jesus and the others spent many a night in prayer and conversation. Jesus knows well the stride and stature of Judas, and he can, he can just make him out leading the way. No lantern in the betrayer's hand, just the steady, deliberate walk of a man on a mission. It won't be long now, not long at all. The hour has nearly come. A somber moment ensues as Jesus says to the remaining 11, you, you will all fall away. He knows the rest of the journey is going to be a lonely one. You will all fall away. They look up at him, I think. Did they see a tear on his cheek? You will all fall away. No, Lord. It's Peter again. Even if all fall away, I will not. Peter was so sure. All the others might run away and deny their love for Jesus, but not Peter. Not the rock, not Peter. Even if all fall away, I will not. 
And then as I picture the scene, with his eyes still on Judas and his entourage, Jesus speaks to Peter. Truly I tell you today, yes, tonight, before the rooster crows twice, you yourself will disown me three times. But Peter insisted emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. Never, 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 shouts Peter, and the words echo through the valley. If called to do so, says Peter. If called to do so, I'll lay down my life for you, Jesus. No doubt in Peter's mind, I'm all in, Jesus. I'd die before disowning you. I'd die before denying my love for you. Not going to happen on my watch. I told you that, Jesus. Not going to happen. But it happened. I don't know what you're talking about. He said it twice to a servant girl at the home of the high priest. I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know what you're talking about. And then the most damning of words, I don't know this man. And immediately the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the words of Jesus. And he, the rock, broke down and wept. You were there. I was there continues to happen to this very day. There is a good bit of Peter in you and me that can disown and deny Jesus. Every time we're unwilling to go all the way with Jesus, we disown him. Every, every time we settle for less than the best that he intends for us and instead go our own way, we deny the master. Every time we close him out of our planning for the future, we disown Jesus. Every time... We say no to the urgings of the Spirit within us. We are denying Jesus. Another preacher puts it this way. He says, think for a moment what our lives would be like if they were completely yielded to him. If our speech were filled with his love and our lives obedient to do the things he would do if he were living in the midst of our society and world. We deny Jesus every time. We refuse to allow him and his perfect will to be worked in and through us. I, I have heard the roosters crow. Many times I have heard the roosters crow. Have you? Were you there? The disciple who was silent, the disciple at a distance, were you there? The disciple who disowned Jesus. And finally, there's, there's the disciple who betrayed Jesus, Judas Iscariot. And ah, we say, now Judas, Judas was unique. There is no way I am like him, no way. But perhaps that is not so indeed. May I suggest tonight, Judas may be the one we most all resemble. Who, after all, was Judas Iscariot? Biblical historians are mostly agreed that Judas was a fanatical nationalist, a patriot in the extreme who saw in Jesus the potential for overcoming the rule of the Romans. Jesus, Judas rather saw the charisma. Judas saw the personal power and the appeal of Jesus. He saw that it could be used to unify Israel. He saw that it could be used to raise up an army of God's people, throw off the yoke of the Roman oppressor and free Jerusalem forever, a conquering Messiah. That's what Judas saw in Jesus, not unlike many, many people around him. That's what Judas expected of Jesus. That's what messiahs are supposed to do. Grab your sword and go after the enemy. 
But when it became clear that Jesus was not about to fulfill the expectations of Judas, he betrayed him. He hijacked Jesus to make him a pawn in his own plot, or so he thought. Judas hoped he could force the master's hand, manipulate the circumstances, back Jesus into a corner so that Jesus would be compelled to rally the people around him in order to save his own life and fulfill the dream of a Jewish kingdom without end. Judas was, Judas was an impatient zealot who preferred his own way and his own pace to God's way and God's pace. And of course, he had a price. You were there. I ask you, are we not like Jesus when, when we grow impatient with the plodding pace of God? Are we not like Jesus? Are we not like Judas when we take our lives and circumstances into our own hands because the Lord's ways are too slow and beyond our mortal understanding? Are we not like Judas when we seek to speed things up and force God's hand, when, when we try to manipulate the circumstances and maybe back God into a corner to get him to act in accordance with our expectations of him? Like the couple I once knew who were convinced, and convinced beyond doubt, they told me, they were convinced that God wanted them to have a new and much bigger house. After all, they'd, they'd prayed about it and the dream persisted. No matter, no matter that the size of the monthly payment would in no way fit into their modest budget, they just knew God wanted them to have that home. Surely God would come up with the dollars. So divine logic, good common sense, they bought the house. And the story did not end well. Those stories seldom do. Were you there? Each of us might well ask, who am I most like at this time in my life, at this place in my spiritual journey? Who am I most like? Am I like Mark, the disciple who was silent, the disciple who followed at a distance because Jesus wanted too much, the master's demands were too high, the cost of followership too high? Am I like Simon Peter, the disciple who disowned Jesus, the disciple who was unwilling to go all the way with the master, not ready to pay the price? Am I like Judas, the disciple who betrayed Jesus, the disciple who could not give up his expectations of Jesus and accept the master for who he really was and still is, the suffering servant who would give his life as a ransom for many, the prince of peace who invites us to deny ourselves, take up the cross and follow him? Or maybe, maybe I'm like I'm like Caiaphas, the high priest, and King Herod, more concerned with maintaining what I already have, measured by power and position and prosperity and letting a truly abundant life with God slip away. Or, or maybe I'm like Pontius Pilate. The crowd around me calls the shots. The crowd around me must be pleased, even at the cost of sacrificing Jesus, even, even if it means turning my back on Jesus, washing my hands of the whole mess. But here's the most important thing. No matter who we sense we are most like today, no matter, no matter where we are in our relationships with Jesus today, there is good news. And we're here about good news tonight. It is, after all, Good Friday. Good news 
because there is always the possibility of change. There is always a way back for repentance and forgiveness and restoration. It is the way of Jesus. Mark, Mark, the disciple who was silent through some ups and downs, some starts and stops. Mark eventually became John Mark, a missionary partner of the Apostle Paul and the author of the second gospel that bears his name. Peter. The disciple who disowned Jesus became the bold and fearless preacher whose very first sermon after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus after Pentecost, his very first sermon brought thousands to faith in Jesus. As we, as we consider Christ's sufferings tonight, and as we come to this table, the Lord's table, let, Let's be reminded particularly of the love and sacrifice of Jesus. Let us be reminded of the presence of his spirit with us in this place. Let us allow this to be a sacred moment. Let us to believe that even in this common ordinary place where there are no high domes and towers and stained glass windows, it's this little place that in this place this is holy ground that in this place Jesus would touch us all that's his desire Jesus would touch us all draw us to his side embrace us with his love forgive and restore us as he did Mark and Peter and all the others who fled and abandoned him and even as he would have done for Judas even Judas even Herod and Caiaphas and Pilate What, after all, is this table all about? That's always something I contemplate when we come here. Earlier this week, I read something that had an impact on me in the moment. It was very early in the week. And then this morning, it circled back some way. I wasn't looking for it. I didn't hang on to it. I wasn't expecting it, but it circled back to me once again. It comes from... Uh, Thought comes from a uh, Franciscan, I believe he is, father by the name of uh, Richard Rohr. I don't give you that name to drop the name just to tell you that's where it came from because it's fair to, to let people know what your source is. But Rohr made the point, or maybe he raised the question, maybe that's the way I'll put it anyway. What, what, if, what if the cross... What if the cross wasn't so much about Jesus changing God's mind about us, you and me? You know, Jesus dying on a cross to appease the anger and wrath of God so that God could now look upon us in a loving and forgiving way. What if, what if it wasn't so much that as it was Jesus dying on a cross to let us change our minds about God. To see that God's love really was demonstrated on that cross that Jesus' death was a demonstration of that love, of God's way of saying, I'm here for you, I'm here with you, I'll take the worst that you can throw at me, 
I'll take your nails. I'll take your crown of thorns. I'll take your sword. I'll take you every bit of violence you can send at me. I'll absorb it all. And still say, forgive them, for they know not what they do. What if the cross, the cross, the message of the cross is an opportunity for us to change our minds about God? I invite you to come to this table tonight to reflect on the love of God for you and how mighty and great and wonderful that love is. Paul said, God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. What did Paul say? It was to demonstrate God's love for you and for me. On the night before the cross, as Jesus was in the upper room with his disciples, he took bread and he broke it and he passed it out to the disciples, saying to them, take it, it's my body broken for you, given for you, eat it. And then he took the cup and after he had poured out the cup, he passed it around the table saying to them, this represents the blood of the new covenant, it's in, it's in my blood. The new promises of God, they're in, they're in my blood now. Remember me when, when you drink it. This is the body and blood of Christ given for us. Jesus' way of saying, I love you. I love you. I'm going to ask those who are going to assist tonight to come up at this point.